This is In the Arena, the debates and lectures of Dr. William Lane Craig. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org. Welcome to Peaceful Science. We're going to be talking, yes, about what Bill Craig has to say to Ken Ham. There's been an interesting exchange online recently, and a lot of people are wondering what is Bill's response. We've gone back and forth a couple times. I've heard some really surprising things from Bill uh, about this, and I'm looking forward to continuing the exchange and sharing it with you. But before we do that, um, you may or may not know who Bill is. You may or not may or not know who I am. Um, I'm with Peaceful Science, and we're trying to we're trying to really find a better way to engage with mainstream science in a way that. That's really trustworthy. That really makes space for deeply held beliefs that a lot of us have, and we are really uh, trying to treat each other well with humility, patience, and tolerance. And um, Bill has become a good friend of mine through this. Uh, we've started talking about stuff about related to Adam and Eve. And at first, I was a, a little bit nervous meeting him a few years ago, um, and I really came to have a great deal of respect for him in particular because he hasn't really gone with the flow in a lot of things. And when it comes to origins, he's really taken a nuanced position. The way I'd explain it is that he is a Christian that affirms evolutionary science or case. That's how I call myself too. So I'm case also. But basically what I would say is that he's a Christian. That's his identity, but he sees legitimacy out there in evolutionary science. Maybe he doesn't swallow everything whole. Um, when we talk about evolutionary science, we don't mean to uh, reject God's involvement or providence in common descent. And we also don't mean to exclude God's uh, direct work in these things and, and, what, and that the story might be a little more complex than what science is. What I can tell you for sure is that science is not the whole story. And, um, and with that, he's been really working out his view of origins. His book on Adam and Eve is coming out really soon. It just ended up in an inbox. I'm gonna be endorsing it, really excited about that. But how would you fill in some of the details on what I just said, Bill, about our history and how we got here, and also uh, also what your position is? Well, I remember it was initially at the uh, Creation Project conferences at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, which were devoted to the subject of human origins. And um, it was striking to see you in these meetings standing up and <laughs> Uh, arguing with the, the speakers concerning certain positions they had taken. And it was very clear that you were a force to be reckoned with. And as well, you I, hope say, it wasn't, I don't think it offended anyone. I, I just think that uh, I really want to make sure science is represented correctly in the church. It doesn't yeah. do us well to, to deal with straw man versions of it, right? Right. It, it, you were polite, uh, but intimidating. Um, <laughs> And uh, so I was struck by this fellow, uh, this tall Indian chap. Hey, I'm so glad this is on tape. Everyone heard it. <laughs> Bill Craig is intimidated by me. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but, but I found you to be, uh, as you say, very congenial and very helpful to me personally, Josh. I've been so grateful for the way you help helped to guide me through the science uh, on human origins. Well, I have to say that I, I was also a little bit intimidated by you. I mean, I've heard about you a lot and I have a great deal of respect for you. Uh, I'm an Indian, we care about our elders. You're, you're a little bit my elder here, Bill. Oh. And, uh, and I was also nervous, you know, because I've experienced a lot of rejection in the church because of what I believe about evolution. And I didn't know what to expect from someone who has had connections to you know, positions that I that haven't always treated me well. Um, mm. And 
I got to say, you treated me with great kindness. We've not always agreed on things. But what I did see is that you were coming to the table with real honest, good faith questions. You saw some legitimacy science, but you had some questions and it wasn't making sense. And it turns out, actually, when it comes to the population genetics and Adam and Eve, where you were just pressing on it, you know, you were vindicated. A lot Thanks of to your work. Well, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I couldn't have done it alone. I mean, I think there's this point where uh, a lot of the work I did early on uh, was just ignored by people who didn't want to acknowledge that they made mistakes. And uh, you seeing what was there, seeing how connected to what was going on, what you were doing. And it isn't even necessarily my perverted position of, uh, of Adam Eve. I'm just trying to get the science straight, right? Yeah. And um, it, I think it was honestly providential. And I think it's easy to throw that term around. Um, but I, I do think that you came into my story just the right moment. And it seems like I came into your story just the right moment, too. Very much so, yes. And we, um, I think we, we were able to do something that I think is really beautiful. It's one of these moments where I think questions from theology, I think, have legitimately altered how many scientists understand and interpret the scientific evidence. I wouldn't go so far to say that all scientists were wrong um, or something like that. I mean, I do have questions about how some have represented it, but it was a detail that hasn't been really well looked at by science. And um, and I think the theological questions that you brought to the table and then we tried to take seriously, I think of legitimately advanced scientific knowledge. And that is not something that can be said of very many philosophers or theologians, wouldn't you say? Wow. Yeah, I do think that C.P. Snow was right in his famous essay, Two Cultures, that those in the humanities and those in the sciences live in two different worlds and neither understand each other nor communicate with each other. Uh, and so this kind of interdisciplinary dialogue is difficult, uh, but so fruitful for those who engage in it. Oh, deeply rewarding. And I think in part because it's so rare, I think the relationships that have formed through this, I mean, frankly, you've become a dear friend to me and I think it's mutual. I don't know. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> Are you still intimidated by me? I don't think so. Um, no, no, I think that uh, it was that just that initial impression when you stood up in that meeting and rebuked the John Bloom, who was oh, the guy. Yeah, I mean, wow. Well, let's move past that. And you know, if you might want to follow the story more, there's a couple things I can point you to. If you look at the comments, I mean, or the, the description of this particular um, uh, this particular video, you'll see links to uh, uh, a preview chapter from uh, Bo Craig's book. Also, a little bit more um, some of his comments from ETS a couple of years back on near theistic evolution, and we'll kind of explain more of the nuances of the position. I think one of the common grounds that uh, Bill and I have found is that we're kind of between the trenches. I mean, there's certain people we've had better connections with, and, and others like we have. You know, Bill is probably a lot more uh, connected to people in the intelligent design movement through his connections to uh, to Biologos and others. Than I am. I'm, I'm a bit more seen as a friendly and sometimes not so friendly critic, depending on how they see me that, that day. Um, and uh, we've also become very good friends with reasons to believe. But in the end, when I look at where we are, uh, we've really found ourselves in the no man's land between the trenches. I don't really think that there's any. Um, I mean, we kind of break some of the molds, don't we? I do think that's true. And I'm very eager to see what the reaction of non-Christian scientists would be to the proposal that I put forward in my forthcoming book. I, I don't know that they will read such a book, but I dearly hope that some of them would, and I would be so interested to 
hear their reactions to it. Well, I think that that would be something really valuable. Let's see when the book comes out. Um, you know, we should explore and see if, some, if people would really want to support maybe doing a small little, um, you know, online workshop with someone like Ian Tattersall and maybe yeah. Nathan Lentz and um, Augustine Fuentes. That, that could be a really, really good conversation. So, you know, if you yeah. want to do that, you know, get involved and let us know and maybe it'll happen. <laughs> I would be really curious, honestly. But as you've gone public on this, I mean, for most of your career, you really focus on mere Christianity. No Christian is going to argue with you about your arguments for the resurrection. I mean, they might on an academic level, but no one's going to come out and, um, and, and you know, call you out as a, as a false prophet for that, right? No. Um, likewise, on, you know, the, your work on the cosmological argument. You do talk about the Big Bang and an old Earth, but I think even young Earth creationists realize that that has like common goal with things that they really care about, right? Yes. And you've had some nervousness and some caution, I think rightly so, to enter into uh, the conversation on Adam and Eve, right? And I think it's because of fear of maybe something like this happening with Ken Ham calling you out. And we're going to get to that right now. Some people are like, okay, what did Ken say? And what did Bill say? That's what people are saying that in the comments. We're going to get to that right now, but go ahead. What, 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 that's been some of your uncertainty, right? Not really, Josh. I'm pretty immune to what people <laughs> think and say about me. That is almost immaterial to me. Rather, my concern was that I don't want to stray into theological error. Uh, and mm. my concern in that sense is the same concern as Ken Ham's. I don't want to do anything that would undermine theological orthodoxy or the truth of God's word. And so in exploring this very difficult subject, I had to be very circumspect to, um, to see how this, this inquiry would turn out. Yeah. And, you know, as a person who watched you go through this, I have to say, from my point of view, it's not that we agreed all the time. I'm not saying this contingent agreement. I'm talking about your process. I saw a lot of integrity in it. And that, mm -hmm. that was why I decided to work even more closely with you, devote time and energy to it, and why I'm very proud to endorse this book. I think that type of uh, courage and integrity is important. But anyways, let's get to the main event here. I think it's a really interesting <laughs> exchange that we can have about this. So back in December, it says December 16th, um, Ken Ham posted this first comment. Now, he posted another comment early January because he got a bit of heat for this. But let's step through this. And I'm going to read it out loud to you and give you a chance to respond to it and tell us what you think about it. So William Lane Craig is held up by many as a great apologist for Christianity. But the fact is he represents one of the major problems with much of the church and most Christian institutions. Do you want to start there, or do you want me to go to the no, next No, no, let's get into the specifics. Watch his short video and see a pseudo-intellectual arrogance that mocks God and his word and instead exalts the word of fallible and sinful man above God's holy and fallible word. His, he is destructive to the church and will have to give an account to God for his blatant compromise of God's word and for leading many astray. Yeah. Now, here, Ken Ham 
launches an attack, not on my view, but on me personally. He questions my personal character. He accuses me of being a pseudo intellectual uh, and of being arrogant. And with respect to the first, I think that is just easy to refute. Uh, I publish with the finest academic presses in the world and in peer-reviewed professional journals. There's nothing pseudo-intellectual about the scholarship that I'm engaged in. And as for arrogance, this is a very, very serious personal uh, charge to make against another uh, Christian, uh, because that's a terrible sin and character fault. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And if I thought for a moment that I were arrogant and that God was opposing me, I would step down from Christian ministry, Josh. I would step back and get out of the public arena and try to put my spiritual house in order before ever daring to be a public representative of Christ again. So I take this charge of arrogance with extreme seriousness uh, and, and just pray that this is not the case, uh, but that with humility, I can conduct an honest inquiry. And I think if you read my work, you'll find that in no way is this mockery. The idea that I would mock God and his word is just an astonishing uh, personal attack. Uh, I want to exalt God and to submit to the truth of scripture. Uh, and my struggles with the historical Adam are precisely an attempt to do that. So I think that this sort of personal character assassination is quite uncalled for. Yeah, I think charges of arrogance are very hard to uh, to address because they are ad hominems. There's no way to make direct proof either way about your personal intentions and heart either. But you know, he yeah. did say that you mocked God. That is something that he can that he should be able to produce comments in which you mock, make fun of God. Mm. I don't actually see any of those comments. He made comments that you made fun of, that you mocked God's word. So that's just blatant falsehood too, right? I think so. So that's, I think that, I think that, that, you, that you're right on that. So let's take this a little bit farther because it does get sensitive and more substantive here. And I think this is something you also want to explain a little bit more to people. Craig yeah. claims, and this is, I think, what he is trying to say is mocking God and his word, which I think is just, I think there's just no way to claim that what this is what, you, what you're doing here, if this is a, even an accurate representation, is mocking God and his word. Craig claims that a genre analysis indicates Genesis chapters 1 through 11 are not literal and historical. That is totally his opinion based on nothing in the Bible. If he had never heard of evolution, he would never think such a thing about the Genesis text. His main thrust is to compromise the pagan religion of evolution in millions of years with God's word. He's helping atheists undermine the word of God and capture the minds of generations of children. Now, this is a more substantive 
paragraph, unlike the first paragraph, which was a personal attack, this one is a criticism of my view and is therefore welcome. And what I want to say to our viewers today is that my analysis of Genesis 1 to 11 is not just totally my opinion based on nothing in the Bible. In fact, quite the contrary. It is based upon a detailed, painstaking analysis of the text of Genesis 1 to 11 while bracketing modern science so that science does not dictate uh, your analysis of the type of literature that Genesis 1 to 11 is. And to claim that chapters 1 to 11 are not literal and historical is comparable to what virtually everyone says, for example, about the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is not literal and historical when it talks about a beast or a, a dragon sweeping the stars from the sky. These, this is Jewish apocalyptic literature, which is filled with symbolic and figurative language. Uh, and so I'm simply suggesting that uh, these chapters are also not of a type of literature that is meant to be read in this sort of literalistic way. And that is not based on opinion. It is based upon a careful examination of the text. Now, as for the charge that if I yeah, want to hit one point too, okay, he all says right. that you're that you're saying that Genesis one through eleven are not historical. As I recall, uh, you think it is historical. Well, that's a good point, Josh. I was focusing on the word literal, but you're right. I do affirm the historicity of Adam and Eve and the other persons that are uh, involved in the primeval history. I call it a primeval history, but I simply say that the the story is told in figurative language. So thank you for that correction. And I think also something that seriously undermines his point, he's saying the only reason why you're not taking it literal and historical, obviously you are taking it historical, but you're not taking it literally, is because you need to not take it literally to, to be consistent with evolution in millions of years. But as we know, you can take Genesis literally and be consistent with evolutionary oh. science. Which so is what in the world would that <laughs> that can't be a logical motivation to do this because a literal reading is consistent with Genesis. So what's going on there? Not only that, but when he says if you'd never heard of evolution, you would never think of such a thing about the Genesis text. That's demonstrably wrong because the church fathers, Oregon and Augustine, had never heard of biological evolution or Darwin, and yet they advocated a figurative reading of the text, uh, much as I do. So what he's claiming- Alongside here is a historical reading, right? You're not saying an exclusively- No, I'm, I'm saying that certain aspects of the narrative are in figurative language, oh, yeah. uh, even though it's about real people that actually live. And that's what Oregon and Augustine thought as well. Well, that's, I mean, that makes sense to me. Oh, one last question, well, point here. He kind of ends by saying, I think this is a pretty strong statement. I want to get your response to it. He says, woe yeah. to the shepherds, I think meaning you, who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastor, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 23.1. Are you a shepherd who destroys and scatters the sheep of God's pasture? Well, I, I, I don't think so, Josh. I have met so many people who, on the contrary, have been put off from Christian belief 
and have even become atheistic because they couldn't bring themselves to believe that the world was created in six consecutive 24-hour days somewhere around 10,000 years ago. So those kinds of people I am providing help to to enable them to embrace Christian faith without committing what they would think to be intellectual suicide. And so, I mean, it really does come down to whether or not, the way I would phrase it in my parlance is, you know, is Jesus greater than origins? I mean, if he is, then it shouldn't matter if we disagree about details of Genesis. Uh, you know, the fact that people come to Jesus and this actually, we don't, I mean, honestly, it seems that even if you're entirely wrong, and I was a young earth creationist watching this, I should be able to say, you know what, Bill Craig, you've taken away some stumbling blocks from people, because even if they're completely wrong about origins and evolution, they should still follow Jesus. Yes, and, that's right. And you have made a way for many people to do that. So I thank you for your work, even though you're totally wrong about the age of the earth. I think you're confused about that. But hey, maybe that's even providential that God's blinded you to that so you can really help these people. <laughs> that. that seems like a far more Christian position, a thoroughly grounded position that understands that Jesus is greater, right? Yes, I think that's right. We need to be united on the essentials and then have charity to one another with regard to the non-essentials. So I think this is really critical. So my critique, to throw it in, of Ken Ham right. is that I think he's forgotten what the cornerstone of the faith is. He's forgotten what the foundation is. Hmm. When he talks about Jesus, oh. he talks about how everything falls apart if you don't get Genesis. Even Jesus yeah. and the resurrection will go away. Yeah, if you know, years, years ago, Josh, I saw a young earth creationist poster that was very telling. It had a picture of two castles on two islands and the people in the castles were shooting cannons at each other fighting. And the one castle was Christianity and the other castle was labeled something like secularism or atheism. And the foundation of the, uh, one was called evolution, uh, and the other one, the foundation of Christianity, was creation. Yeah, do now, you know where that, that comic, do you know where that image is from? No. Ken Ham oh. says that that is the visual mission statement for Answers in Genesis. I see. And this, is it's not so, just, this is actually the way how they illustrate. Yeah, it, it is. It bears out the point you were making. It is, it is such a misunderstanding of theological priorities to think that Christianity is based upon the doctrine of creation and that atheism is based upon the theory of evolution. It, it, it almost stands things on their head. Well, my concern with it, is that it seems to be in direct contradiction with a literal reading of scripture that says that Jesus is the cornerstone. I know, I know, for goodness sake. I mean, I thought he was the cornerstone. He was the first stone laid, and he's the capstone, too, isn't he? He's the and, last stone. And yeah, the keystone, the cornerstone that the builders rejected. Paul says, no foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I've talked to atheists, and you know, peaceful science, peaceful science includes a lot of atheist scientists, and it's really interesting to see some of their responses to Ken Ham I mean, at, um, at our, at our uh, forum. A lot of them have actually come to your defense, and it's been interesting to see some oh. of their theology. They get it. They know. 
<laughs> they know oh. that Christianity is grounded on Jesus, not not rejection of evolution, not your earth creationism. Right. And I gotta say, um, in different ways, maybe um, they might agree with me saying this or not. I'm not talking about specific people right now. It really does seem that Jesus is still compelling. I think that there's something that I draw that's, that that makes sense about him, even when you can't figure everything else. It really, I see a great deal of wisdom about how everything Scripture points to Jesus. If he's the foundation, that's what he's he's the one who makes sense of the Old Testament. He's the one who makes sense of the New Testament, and so much more. And you know, without him, it just doesn't really make much sense. And I think sometimes when I was younger, the creationist, before I even knew who Ken Ham was, I kind of fell into the same trap of thinking other things needed to fill that place. That if that didn't wasn't there, if my understanding of Genesis wasn't there, then everything would fall apart. And I think I was just wrong. Yeah. Anyways, let's get back to a second comment now. So what happened yeah. is, um, let's see here, what happened? This is on January 5th. Uh, he got a bit of heat and it's a much longer comment. Um, it's interesting on several levels. He talks about Spurgeon. It turns out you weren't the only one he called out, Bill. He also called out VeggieTales, uh, Phil Vision. Yeah. yeah. And it'll be fun if uh, Phil, I invited Phil to join us sometime to give a response to Ken Ham. It'll be really interesting if he does. There's a really brilliant video that Phil did uh, on some of this that I think is worth looking at. But setting that aside, he, he jumps into this a bit more. And when I forwarded this to you to talk about what struck me about it actually is that you immediately said, "Oh, I actually agree with Ken on a lot of stuff on this one." Which yeah. I thought, "Oh, this is great." So tell us on this one, what do you agree with here? You probably want me to read this section here, right? Um, I don't have that on the screen in front of me, uh, Josh. I wanted to point to the uh, comment that he makes that many of the comments we received were very encouraging, but some were very negative. Yeah, so now many of the comments we received were very encouraging, but some were very negative, attacking me yeah. for calling out Dr. Craig and Vischer on their compromise, claiming it's unloving to publicly dispute their teaching and claims. After now, all, these comments yeah, now, are- Wait, wait, wait. If, we, if I might interrupt, I think this is very telling because he did not so much publicly dispute my teaching and claims as attack my personal character. And that's what the people were disagreeing with him about. It is not true that they said it's, uh, that they said it's unloving to publicly dispute a person's teaching and claims. For example, Luke Nix was one of the posters uh, who said, I agree with Can Ham that Genesis 1 to 11 is history and not mytho history. However, it does nothing for the body of Christ to attack the character and or motives of a fellow brother in Christ who disagrees with us. We need to address his evidence, his reasoning, and his conclusions in a respectful and loving manner. Hey, so what push back on you on that, because I've looked and seen some of your exchanges. I'm not going to name the scholars. At times, you actually have called out people for dishonesty. Uh, have I? Yeah, there was a, uh, if you recall, I emailed you about this once. There was a secular physicist who had exchanges with a cosmologist. He didn't represent those emails. Well, you actually published them on your website and explained why you thought. Oh, yes. I mean, that, that was a, uh, 
That, that was, was not merely talking about your disagreements. You were you were well, talking about his character. No, I don't think I was. I don't think I was attacking his character, though that may have been Im implied. What I was saying was that he deliberately doctored this quotation. It was it was Lawrence Krauss who doctored a quotation from Alex Vilenkin and showed it publicly on the screen. Uh, and what I did was I simply showed the original quotation after you put back in the parts that Krauss had deleted. And it showed a very, very different uh, viewpoint from Professor Vilenkin. Uh, so in that case, it, I, I was, again, I was disputing what he said. I, I wasn't just attacking him. Well, you weren't making a character attack. You were, I think, presenting evidence that made very clear a problem with character. Well, it, it, yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It did make that problem clear. So but I mean, that was that, that was a non-Christian. That was an atheist. Yes. Uh, should, should Christians do that with other Christians, or is that something we should, we should oh, never? Well, certainly, no, no. I mean, if if one were guilty of deliberately misquoting someone, deleting portions of his words to give the wrong impression, we should definitely be called out on that. And I want to agree with Ken Ham that we should publicly dispute the teaching and claims of people that we think are wrong. Um, but I don't think that Ken is able to distinguish very well between attacking a person's views and attacking a person's character. Even in the way he characterizes these responses from people like Luke Nix, he says that they attacked me for calling out. Dr. Craig. That, that's not what Luke did. He didn't attack Ken Ham personally. What he said is that we need to address a person's evidence, reasoning, and conclusions in a loving and respectful way and not attack his character and motives. Uh, and I think that's absolutely correct. You know, see, this is why I think this matters. I mean, the reality is, is that there is dishonesty out there. At times we have to call it out, but we need to be better even when there is dishonest people talking with us. We have to be better when there's real significant disagreements on things that matter in a way, especially because our society is so divided. We have to be better. We have to find a better way to do this than just uh, than just posturing publicly and saying stuff like this, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean... I got on as an aside, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm 41. Uh, you're a little older than me. Is it yes. worse now than it used to be? Like what's going on? Oh, well, certainly civil discourse uh, has become very, very divisive. For example, it's very common today to accuse people of lying, not just being mistaken, but deliberately lying. It didn't used to be that way back in the 70s and the 80s. But I guess it was probably under the Clinton years that political discourse uh, just became really, really ugly. And so now it's common to hurl around these accusations of being a liar rather than simply saying you're mistaken or you're wrong. So I do think that the political discourse especially has gotten really uncivil in our day. Yeah, this is going to be this is going to be a challenge for us. I mean, far beyond origins. I mean, the church is really going to. I think. I think honestly, the greatness of Jesus is often very clear when Christians that disagree find a community that doesn't depend on agreement. 
Yeah. Where we can actually we can actually find um, our common ground in that cornerstone, even though we disagree on significant things. And if we give up on that, I think we're giving up on far too much. Yes, that's so true, isn't it? I mean, as the Church of Christ, we are to exhibit the sort of unity of a brotherhood of love um, that doesn't attack each other personally. So it's what I'm hearing, though, is something else that I want to make clear. It sounds like you're saying you're welcoming them to come and give you a thoughtful, informed, valid critique right. of your work. Right. That's exactly right. And in this second blog that he posted, he asked the question, he said, should we not speak out when we see professing believers teaching doctrine that is opposed to scripture? And his answer is no, doctrine matters. And I want to say a healthy amen to that. I completely agree with Ken Ham that when we see doctoral aberrations, we need to identify them, refute them, and correct them as best we can. So this gets to, I think, a key way how Christian community is supposed to work. It's very hard to root out our own mistakes by ourselves, right? That's true because we all think we're right. <laughs> Look, I have like I have a major flaw in my writing. It's called typos. I make typos all the time. And you're in the middle of going through like the final proofread of the book right now, of your book right now. I don't know. Yeah. Are you good at catching your own typos? Pretty good. Although wow. I've got some help as well. I, I have two other people who have eagle eyes. And so after I've proofread the manuscript, I send it to these fellows and see what they can catch. And, and it is amazing how they find things that I overlook. Well, I don't find it amazing because I'm pretty, I'm pretty bad. I got to tell you, when it came to writing my book, the hardest part about it was going through and catching the typos. And, and I think we failed like about four pages in our errata, just full of typos. Oh. <laughs> you, you know, people who don't publish uh, would be shocked at how bad a job the editors do of proofreading your book. Uh, if but, but you so I gotta say, it it's far easier for me to catch typos in something else when someone else has written. And yeah, it's far well, easier for someone to, to catch it in mine, right? Yeah, but these editors very typically don't see it. So anyways, I think that's a yeah. good analogy to help us. I think here's a question I have for you. Like if Ken Ham and some of the people in his inner circle were willing to actually dialogue with you more substantively about this, to really explore what scripture really teaches and the space it gives, would you be willing to do that? Oh yeah, very much so. In fact, you know, Josh, as you know, one of the follow-up projects I'm engaged in is proposing a four views book on the historical Adam that would include not only your proposal and my proposal, but would include some young earth creationist author defending uh, that view. So I am eager for dialogue with uh, folks who hold to the more uh, traditional view. Yeah, I hope that the dialogue really grows. I think, um, you know, I have many friends that are young earth creationists. I have many family members that are there. I think a lot of people give up on them and think that they're really beyond reach and they're hopeless. But I, I actually have found really great connection and friendship with them. I Good. think that there's an opportunity for a really meaningful exchange. Um, my concern when I look at young earth creationism is setting aside the scientific disagreements. I mean, everyone knows what those are. Um, and, you know, probably the biggest issue is honestly this theological issue when at times some young earth creationists put Jesus at the center. I mean, I mean, actually, they don't put Jesus at the center. They put creationism at the center. 
But beyond that, sometimes young earth creationism can be very insular. They don't um, really engage with people who think differently. Have you seen yeah. that? Oh, oh, I have. In the effort to find a participant in my Four Views book that would defend the young earth creationist position, uh, I had uh, I approached two prominent exponents of that view, and they both would not participate in the book unless certain conditions were fulfilled that were, I think, quite unreasonable. Uh, and so there is a kind of insularity and suspiciousness that characterizes this community. So let me give you a second to just pause. I'll get out of the way. I'll put you on the center screen here. Can you um, give uh, AIG and Ken Ham and his community like just a clear invitation that you really hope that they'll take to dialogue with you about this in a way that makes sense to them? Sure. I want to say that what I put forward is merely a proposal. Uh, I am not dogmatic. Uh, and I would welcome any dialogue uh, concerning um, this proposal that I put forward on the historical atom. I want to hear from those who disagree. Well, that's great. And I want to say that, you know, Ken Ham, when you get around to watching this and everyone from your community, just, you know, we're not the enemy. I don't think you're the enemy. I'd really love to have you in a conversation with us about this. Let's talk about it. Let's resolve it. You know, show us where, where we've gone wrong and we'll listen to you and here, come talk to us. We want to engage. Wouldn't that be fun? You think it'll come? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. So let's go through this a little more. What other things though did you see here that well, are worth talking I, about? I think his very last paragraph was worth uh, focusing on because it's another point of agreement. He says, should we judge what other Christian leaders believe? Yes, we should always judge what we and others believe against scripture. Uh, and notice my emphasis on the word what. We should judge their views, their positions, their uh, arguments. He says, and yes, we can and should judge. In summary, he says, we love the creator, his word, and his church, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, too much to allow believers to unknowingly or knowingly compromise God's word. So we will follow the admonitions in scripture to call out false teaching, even when it is taught by someone who appears to be a genuine believer. It is loving and it is the right thing to do. And I would applaud that and second that. We must never allow doctrinal error or theological compromise to go unchallenged because of our affection or respect for the person who is in error. We need to identify, to refute, and to correct as best we can those errors uh, that are committed regardless of who commits them. So it sounds like you're not objecting to the fact that he called you out. You're objecting to the fact that it was personal and it wasn't substantive and you wanna engage on the substance of them. Exactly, I thought his second post was so much better than the first one. The first one was very nasty, frankly. Uh, he was attacking my personal character rather than my views. But after being challenged by this Luke Nix, um, he really changed his tune 
and I thought made some really good points in this second post. Well, that's great. So there you have it. You know, you have some common ground with Ken Ham. I think a lot of people weren't <laughs> expecting that. <laughs> so, you know, when I think about this, um, you know, I mean, it's really great. First of all, thank you for coming on and giving your response to this. I do think that there's like an underlying question or, or tension that's been hard for the church. It's bigger than just this exchange between you and Ken. I think we've really been struggling and wondering how it is that the church is supposed to relate with mainstream science. Now, of course, no one will say, even the earth creationists will, will say that they have no problem with science rightly told. And they would tell you science rightly told is young earth creationism, right? So science per se isn't the problem. It's rather mainstream science, uh, things like the age of the earth and potentially the common descent and evolution in the animal kingdom and particularly the possibility of evolution and common descent among humans. That's, that's where you know a lot of Christians have really struggled. Some have really thought that we need to take an oppositional approach. Some have, have taken an approach where um, sometimes it just feels like it's just agreeing with everything that science says. And some people have called that compromise or capitulation. And some people are trying to kind of mark out some sort of middle way. What do you think the right way is for Christians to engage with mainstream science? Well, I think we have to treat mainstream science with tremendous respect. When scientific evidence supports a view powerfully, then I think we have to take that very seriously. And if we really believe that scriptural teaching is in contradiction to what is firmly established by science, then it seems to me that we're going to need to have to have radical revisions in our doctrine of inspiration in some way. So that, for example, the theological truths of scripture would be inspired, but the um, scientific husks would not. For example, take the... You, let's, let's make this clear for people. Do you feel what you've encountered science has required you to go down that path yet? No. So to be clear, you're talking about this hypothetical, if we ever encountered right. serious right. conflict that could not be resolved. With now, for example, suppose, as some think, suppose we came to believe that Genesis actually teaches that there is a solid firmament over the earth, like an inverted bowl, and the stars are engraved on this solid surface. If we really came to think Genesis taught that, it seems to me we would have to revise our doctrine of inspiration. It would be futile to reject modern science and say, well, there really is such a solid surface up there, and science is all wrong, and somehow the astronauts going to the moon got through it, and uh, it, it, but it's really there. We would have to say, no, uh, what Genesis is doing is that it's expressing theological truths in obsolete uh, ancient scientific terms that don't need to be uh, taken as part of the, the doctrinal content of Scripture. But as you, as you just and indicated, of course, some, some scholars have gone that way, but I think yeah. both of us would argue that they didn't have, to, they didn't have, there's nothing in science that actually pushed them there, and there's really nothing in Scripture that pushed them there. They went there, but that, they didn't have to. Would you say that? That's true? correct. Yeah, that, that is correct, and that's the position I take in the book, that one can be fully in accord with what modern science has to teach about human origins and believe in a historical Adam and Eve who are the progenitors of all 
mankind. So that's the position that I'm defending. But I'm just thinking hypothetically here about the relationship between science and 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 scripture, that if we did come to the point where we thought that something taught by scripture. I mean, how would you know, though, if the science, how would you know if the science was really solid and it was correct? Well, this is important because you really had some strong feelings about the idea of, you know, Adam and Eve. And, And for a long time, people were telling you that the evidence just totally rolled it out. Now, they were totally wrong. There wasn't really any scientists out there that really cued you into the fact that, yeah, you actually had a point. So, so, you know, but you kind of were a holdout there. So what's going on with that? Well, I mean, there are some scientific um, views that are so incontrovertibly established by multiple lines of evidence that it's indisputable. For example, that we, that that the earth is not flat. Suppose somebody came to believe that the Bible teaches a flat earth. I don't see how anyone could fly in the face of modern science and say the earth really is flat rather than roughly spherical. Or again, the firmament. I I don't see how anyone could maintain his intellectual honesty and say that the stars are engraved on a solid surface somewhere above uh, the earth. so there, there, there comes a point at which one would have to say that certain facts are so firmly established scientifically that if the Bible did contradict that, you would have to change your view of biblical inspiration such that these uh, portions of Scripture don't belong to the inspired content of Scripture, but are simply part of the obsolete husks. So if that happens, if that hasn't happened for you, no. If that happened, would there still be good enough reason to follow Jesus? Oh, of course. I mean, I, well, what's the risk I, exactly? What? Well, excuse me. Then what exactly is the risk then? I mean, doesn't well, I, that I didn't substantially say reduce the, the the fear factor that we should be having on this compared to oh, how? Oh yeah, a lot. I didn't say there was a risk. I mean, a person who holds this view, for example, would be the great uh, British Christian philosopher, Richard Swinburne. Swinburne distinguishes between the doctrines of Scripture and the presuppositions of Scripture. And he says very often the Scriptures will presuppose an ancient, obsolete worldview of science. Um but this isn't part of the doctrinal teaching of Scripture. It's just part of the um, cultural presuppositions that they had at that time. And I think that that's a perfectly credible view. Um, uh, and I think we would all agree with it with respect to certain things. For example, when Jesus says the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds, I don't think any of us would say that's an error on Jesus' part because he's not trying to teach botany. Or when Jesus says the moon. Well, the way how it's stated in the Chicago Statements on Inerrancy, a statement of literalism, to be clear. So this is not um, this is not even going to a figurative point of view. They would address that and say, well, Scripture doesn't speak with scientific precision. It speaks in a yes. more colloquial way. And Jesus yes. is entirely correct that you know, the mustard seed is yeah. the... And that's why, Josh, again, to come to my hypothetical, I said, if 
we came to the point that we believe that scripture taught something that contradicts scientific fact, then we'd have to make some kind of revision, such as Swinburne does, because that's what he he thinks, that there are things that are in scripture that are unscientific, um, like the firmament um, and so forth. Um, but I don't think that we're at all to that point. I would agree with the Chicago statement that Jesus isn't trying to teach botany, or that when Jesus said, the moon will not give its light. Um, Jesus probably thought the moon was luminous. Uh, that's what you would think phenomenally, but I think that's just phenomenal language. It's not meant to be a scientific statement about- Phenomenal logic language just means speaking from the point of view of human perception. Yeah. So it looks like it's, it's giving off light. That doesn't mean yeah. that scripture's teaching that it's producing its own light and it's not reflecting it. That, exactly. That's not what it's, that's that's not what it's doing. It's completely true that the that the moon gives off light, even though it, that's not the mechanism scientifically. Yeah, right. Now, one criticism I think that you're going to get, and I want to hear how you respond to it, because uh, I know you're going to get this from Ken Ham. In fact, you did. You know, one deficiency in your model, so it will be said, is that it makes space for evolution. We know a good approach would challenge evolution. It would challenge the mainstream account. Account. Uh, it, should that be how we think about this? Are we trying to find things that that oh. challenge directly and show that uh, that large parts of science are wrong? And if only, we don't, then it's a problem. I would say only if Scripture compels you to do so. And I think the difference between me and Ken is that I don't think Scripture compels you to close the door on evolutionary theory. Um, I think that's a scientific question, not a scriptural or theological question. So um, I, I just don't confront that, that dilemma. You know, it's funny. I remember um, we talked early on about your book and we, because we're talking about another book, Adam and the Genome, the subtitle of that book is reading scripture after science. And both of us were kind of like, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. And the way how that book is structured is that the first half of the book is science, right? And then the last half of the book yeah. is scripture. Yeah. And, um, you know, this isn't meant to be a big review of that book. And that's not the point. But there's just something in terms of that structuring that just didn't sit right with us. You want to explain that? Right. I, I think that that approach would be guilty of what Ken Ham charges me with, namely using modern science to impose it upon the text of Genesis and interpret these ancient texts in light of modern science. And that is why, to the contrary, I bracketed anything that modern science says about human origins to look directly at the text itself and to see what is the text saying? How did these ancient authors understand these texts? Uh, and how did their audience at that time understand them? And that's where I argue that there are lots of clues in the text that this was not meant to be taken as a kind of literalistic uh, historical account. So you started with just looking at scripture and then you moved to science to be in dialogue with it. And so yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's why he's so mistaken when he says that Craig's view is based on nothing in the Bible. It's all about imposing 
uh, evolutionary theory on the Bible. That, that well, the thing about it, I think this is where Ken maybe is misidentifying, because I think maybe many ways how Christians have approached evolution have done exactly what he accused you of. That's possible, right? Yeah, actually, I make that point in the introduction to the book. I'm, I'm pretty hard on some of my Christian uh, colleagues. I say there are all sorts of fanciful interpretations of Genesis that have been motivated by the attempt to make it compatible with modern science. The idea that the young earth creationist might be right in his interpretation is so unthinkable that these exegetes do backflips to come up with interpretations of the text that would be compatible with science. And I think that's quite illegitimate. You've got to bracket that scientific question. So how would you describe the right approach? Is it that we're supposed to read, are we supposed to engage with okay. science after reading well, you, you, scripture or read scripture yeah. alongside science or what? I think the first thing you do is to treat these texts as ancient pieces of literature and try to exegete them using historical grammatical method, analysis of the literary type that it belongs to. Is it poetry? Is it history? Is it genealogy? What is the literary type? And then to compare it or, and then to read it in context and then to read it in the cultural context of the ancient Near East. Uh, and that will help us to understand how But to put it simply, you're saying read scripture and then do what with science? Engage with it? Dialogue with it? Yeah, and then engage with it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, take, take what scripture teaches and then say, all right, is this view, is this teaching of scripture, is this defensible in light of what modern science has to tell us? I yeah, think so that's I what both with of a, us were. I think that's a great way to put it. You know, instead of reading uh, scripture after science, we want to read scripture and understand what science has to say and try to make sense of everything together. I think that's what uh, that's how I understand it. But I want to come back to a, a very early analogy you brought and then and bring you a, a question based on that. You talked about how interdisciplinary dialogue is hard, and you're right. Mm -hmm. you brought up the question of the blind man and the elephant. You know, I'm an Indian again here. You know, that that's an Indian analogy, right? Yeah. <laughs> And it's about it's it's about um, that, but that isn't all the characters, right? So the story is that there's right. a in this court that are watching the, uh, the 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 blind men, and one of them holds like the ear and thinks that it's like a, you know cloth. The other one holds the tail, thinks it's like a broom. The other one grabs the 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 um, grabs the uh, you know the leg and thinks it's a trunk. And you can kind of go down the list. One of them grabs a trunk and thinks it's. Uh, uh, well, a trunk of a tree I meant before. They raise a trunk and thinks it's a tree. And, and they're arguing with each other, right? And they're stuck. And this is all from the point of view of the king's uh, court. Now, one wrong, illegitimate way to look at this is then to say, well, there is no real truth. But the fact of the matter is that there is an elephant. Yeah. And, an elephant. and in the original story, the king is standing on the balcony watching this. He has the objective perspective on what's going on that each of the blind men lacks. So I think that's a very apt analogy for many things. I think it's a beautiful analogy for how it is when it comes to one person interpreting scripture, another person looking at science, yeah. another person oh. looking at a particular theological tradition. You go down the list where um, that 
certainly there's going to be people who are not honest like they or they're just deeply confused they touch i mean they're grabbing like a peach tree and they're talking about what that is rather than the, the elephant yeah. okay that can happen um and there can be people who are there as confederates trying to make a problem but quite a bit of very intense passion disagreement i think yes and it can, just the it can be as, grabbing onto different pieces of the elephant right it's it's different parts of the elephant that we're grabbing onto and as you can tell our viewers, Josh, specialization in science has become so intense that I have found that, say, uh, paleoneurologists are clueless when it comes to, say, paleontology um, or to paleogenetics. These areas are so specialized that often even the scientists aren't talking to one another and are ignorant of what's going on in the other field. So it's not as though there's a theologian with one hand on the elephant's leg and there's a scientist over here. Rather, it's there's a biblical scholar, there's uh, a systematic yeah, theologian, some of the there's biggest... a paleoanthropologist, there's a paleogeneticist. There's a lot of people going on in this dialogue. You kind of have this very rowdy community of people that I think what's so hard about it is that it's not that they're ignorant. They've actually taken a hold of something that has some legitimacy to it. <laughs> yeah. But they might be ignorant of what the other person's got a hold of. Exactly. You know, they, they, they understand is that the we have to be able to realize that there's limits to what we know. And maybe there's a yeah. way it all fits together. So here's the yeah. question I have. And then there's one more really good question that came up in the in the in the comments that it's a hard one. I'm kind of curious to answer it, and then we'll be done. And I, first of all, I want to really thank the audience for coming along with us this long. It's been fun. Um but here's the question I have. I think it's gonna be important for those of us who have come th th this far as we kind of think about these really challenging debates. And frankly, it's not just about Adam and Eve. It's not just about origins. It's also about politics. It's also about race. It's about a lot of things in society right now, right? You know, the blind men are there fighting tooth and nail. How do they sit down and talk to one another mm. and come to understand that there's an elephant? How do they move to the king's perspective? What do they do? Yeah. Well, let me tell you what I try to do. I try to talk with and read the work of those who specialize in other fields. Uh, I spent a lot of time digesting scientific literature in some of the most recondite fields of uh, human origin studies that one could imagine. And then try to be clear. To you were having a real blast in it. You were having a lot of fun. Oh, I'm. I'm just. I feel like a kid in a candy shop. I, I'm learning so much. I mean, what would I know about ancient dentition and the importance of tooth enamel growth for human origins? And yet, it's critical. Uh, so things like this are. It's a wonderful dialogue if you can read the work of people in these other fields and then ask them questions. I regularly email physicists and biologists and geneticists and so forth, like yourself, with my layman's questions and say, can you explain this to I me? Mean, I kind of CC'd in on these. And I got to tell you, over and over again, I've seen secular scientists, um, we don't know what the religion is, but most of them are probably atheists, respond to you with such kindness and clarity. Um, <laughs> As did you, Josh. I mean, I hounded you for a while with emails about the genetics because I just, it wasn't 
something I was familiar with. Well, I mean, that was a place, like I said, where there was some genuine things that people had missed. And, you know, mm. and that, that yeah. was fun. Mm. So that's what we should do. I think what you're saying to, to reframe it or to restate it is that, that we need to listen to each other. We need to read each other, be there interested across it. Say, okay, so I have this and I understand this, but can I see what you're holding too? Can I touch it and look at it? Uh -huh. Can you maybe tell me about yeah. it? And let's yeah. just think about it together. And and I and I think you also raise a question of question, raise the issue of questions. And I would say that a really key thing that we need to be very good about, uh, whatever expertise is, is actually taking good faith questions seriously, engaging them yeah. with courage, honesty, and uh, you know rigor. So the final question, the one that I thought was really good. This is the last one. It's a fun one, and then we're going to end. And once again, I really want to thank you for joining. And, and you know, I hope you'll uh, I hope you'll uh, join the channel. Uh, subscribe to our mailing list at Peaceful Science. And pretty soon we'll also have the transcript out for this exchange as well. Oh, okay. But the question was, it was from uh, it was from a guy who asked, like, if you were to guess, so this is a guess, okay, there's no theology hanging on this, okay? In, in some sort of, so we're not asking you to confess your personal beliefs. This is just a wild guess. And it's a playful question. If you were to get a time machine, be able to travel back to Jesus in... Jerusalem and ask him, is evolution true or not? What do you think he would say? Oh, I feel quite certain he would say, what do you mean? <laughs> Explain it to me. I've never heard of it. And then you would have to lay out for him the theory. We must not think of the incarnation as Superman disguised as Clark Kent. So this gets back to like some of Andrew Locke stuff and then in the hidden or in the cryptic incarnation that Jesus actually laid aside some things. He laid aside some things when he became, uh, you know, a, you know, a human amongst us. Yes, that's right. And there's no reason to think that Jesus would have been able to answer questions. So, so you explain about... it to him. Let's take the thought experiment further. You explain it to him. What do you think he would say then? Oh, well, um, he would say, well, I guess I don't see any conflict between that and what Moses teaches in Genesis. Yeah. Okay. So here's another question then. Let's say we get to heaven. We see him uh, now. We're not going back in time. We're going forward to in time. Oh. You might get it before me, Bill. Um, and you'll probably know before many of us watching. So you can kind of give us like what your bet is on this. And we find out together. You ask Jesus, you know, is evolution yeah. true? Like, did you make things through a process? providentially govern common descent. What do you think he'll say? Uh, I, I'm not sure he would be committed to common descent past the Cambrian explosion. But I, I think that he would say that a great, great deal of the biological uh, life forms that we observe today are related by common descent. What about human common descent? Do we share common ancestors with the great apes? What, what do you think he would say? Yeah. Of course, this is all... Highly yeah. speculative, right? We don't know. I mean, see, when you say, what would Jesus say? What you're really asking is, what does the evidence indicate? Because that's what we're trying to surmise. See, and I think I, he would do something different. I think he would answer yeah. kind of like with when people ask him about taxes. I think that we would come to him with one answer, and he would know the answer. But he'd be like, hey, that wasn't the most important thing to me. <laughs> Oh, well, now you're being clever, uh, Josh. I mean, well, Jesus was clever. I'm trying to say he would give a clever answer. I mean, okay, yeah. And, and yeah, he could be clever like that and evasive. But I, I think what the questioner wants to know is, 
what really is the truth about these matters? Um, and, and, uh, and, and I suspect the truth is someplace close to what I suggest in this book about human origins. Well, you know, that, there you have it. Um, I think that, what a great conversation, Bill. It's always a pleasure. I think that we're going to find out soon. Um, if there's a way for you to communicate past, you know, you know, when you go see the Lord, you know, find a way. <laughs> don't write, don't write me off so quickly, Josh. I hope you're right. Hey, you gotta tell us, did you take the COVID vaccine? I gotta fit no, I gotta finish this systematic philosophical theology first. You're gonna take the COVID vaccine, right? Um, I don't know. Um, I have uh, an allergy to bee stings and insect stings, and I've been told that people with allergies maybe shouldn't be vaccinated. Well, we'll talk about that. Um, okay, if you can yeah. shed any light on that, I would be very welcome. Yeah, we gotta make sure it. you stay as long, alive as long as possible. Um, okay. I would say, I, I hope that you outlive me, but I'm too young to say that, Bill. I mean, that would be really sad <laughs> at this point. <laughs> well, life is uncertain, Josh. Yeah, um, well, I mean, maybe it wouldn't be so sad. Um, I think my wife would be sad, though. I think my kids would be sad. Oh, yeah, it's it's the tragedy is for them. For you, it'd be great to go home to glory. So with that, once again, thank you all for joining us. It's been fun, and I hope you enjoy the conversation with us again soon. Don't you leave, Bill. For more, go to reasonablefaith.org.